sitting across the table from a client having the conversation with them. You never know really how it's going to go. And, and in the past, I have found it tough just with some clients to connect when maybe they've lost their husband. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt, and in this episode, we're going back to an old model here. I actually have two separate interviews here. Both are fairly focused discussions with financial advisors with an estate planning slash insurance focus to them. This episode will be good for continuing education credits in all provinces. Alberta, it will be good for life only, no accident and sickness credits. It will be good for a financial planning credit from FP Canada. It will be good for a professional development credit from IROC. In our first interview, we're going to talk to Christopher. Christopher had a really interesting concept that came up in class. And it sounds like a really good solution to a problem. I enjoyed listening to this. I found this very much fits with what we're teaching today in the CFP curriculum in terms of making difficult decisions easy. And I'm sure that everybody listening to this call has had an experience where you tell a client to get a will. You know that client needs a will but they don't get it done. I know some advisors who won't even do business with a client until they have a will done. Christopher has a really, I think, useful and practical solution to that problem. And we do chat in the interview a little bit about sort of the era of COVID and how this has changed this. Now, maybe it won't be long before he's doing, he's having sort of the solution again with social distancing, but we are seeing a few provinces now adopting their wills and estates legislation. It actually looks like Ontario is going to have a complete modernization of its estates legislation, but a lot of provinces now have adjusted their estates legislation to allow for the electronic signing of will and estate documents, which is just fantastic. The color for today's episode is blue. The color for today's episode is blue. Okay, let's hear what Christopher has to say. Like I said, I found a lot of value in this, even if you can't do exactly what he suggests. I think that this does drive home the point that there are ways to solve these problems that make life easier for your clients. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the end of this discussion. OK, 
Okay, I'm here today with Christopher. Christopher is a financial planner and also life insurance and mutual fund licensed uh, operating out of Saskatchewan. That's it, Christopher? Correct, yeah. Perfect. And can you talk a little bit about the types of clients you normally work with? Yeah, absolutely. So our uh, probably the bulk of our book of business would be family clients. So husband, wife, kids. We've been around a while, so we're fortunate where we get into a little bit of the multi-generational where we'll have a mom and a dad maybe, and then the, we'll you know, be able to bring the kids on later in life, whether it's through an RESP or just them transitioning into their own kids. We do have a decent book of business clients. That is a, I guess an area that I'm trying to get more into and that I do enjoy working in a lot. I enjoy the complexity of it and just the, uh, the details and the knowledge base that is required to understand how to work in that. And then some of the stuff we've been through just with ourselves personally uh, in our own business transition really makes that appealing. Yeah, I know you're in a family business and you sort of inherited the business a few years ago now, right? Yeah. I'm wondering if you can chat a little bit about how your experiences with your own business transition have influenced the types of conversations you have with your clients now. Yeah, that's a very good question. Living through my dad's passing in 2012 and the transition of his private corporation to myself with the involvement of my three other siblings and everybody being equal shareholder in the OPCO, I guess, and the old co's created a lot of complexity and a lot of sensitive navigation, we'll call it. You would think a business transition, the way I talk to clients is you set up life insurance so that the individual in the business continues to run the business can use that to pay out the other shareholders. Ours didn't go that way. It was much more complex. Everybody still remains shareholders today, even though we have finally figured out how to sever, I guess, what was dad's and what I will be running going forward. But going through that whole process really gave me a lot of insight into the, when I guess when a client passes, they don't understand what's coming. They don't have an idea what they're about to take on. So having gone through that, I really enjoy being able to share that experience with them and just how difficult and how the tiny little details really can become the sticking points. It's not the big stuff that people are necessarily concerned about. It's, you know, where does that thing go that was on dad's desk? Like all of a sudden you're getting lost in tiny details and being able to prepare them for this a little bit, all the while advising on the financial aspect is I really enjoy that. All right. So I am curious about something. Some people are listening going to think I'm callous because, of course, when you mentioned that your father passed away, and that's you know still relatively recent, you know about eight years ago or so, and people are going to say, well, Jason, you should jump in and say, sorry to hear about your loss. Christopher, of course, you and I have chatted about this before, right? I've heard this. I'm, I'm curious, though, with clients, do they, when you bring this up, do they have an immediate sort of emotional response like that or... Is it sort of a, just a matter of fact discussion? How does that show up, sort of bringing that personal experience into your discussion with your clients? I would say completely varied. So generally more emotional responsive than not. But sitting across the table from a client, having the conversation with them, you never know really how it's going to go. And, and in the past, I have found it tough just with some clients to connect when maybe they've lost their husband. Like I've lost my my dad, I've lost other family members, but every once in a while you find a client that you just can't quite read very well. And so it can get difficult to really, I feel, connect with them on the level that I would like to connect with them on. Now through continued contact, we can do that. But going into these more detailed discussions, it kind of depends if they're, you know, 
if they feel like you know, if you can gauge if they're emotionally ready for that or if you're just kind of touching on the high points and lots of this is done through multiple meetings where we're talking three or four times over the course of processing a, a beneficiary claim or or even beginning the early stages when we're talking about planning it. I mentioned all these stories then too, so they understand what they're getting into and why these plans are important. Yeah, that nothing beats that lived experience, right, in terms of helping somebody recognize the importance. Now, on that note, I know you're currently midway through, hopefully near the end of pursuing your Chartered Life Underwriter designation. Yeah, absolutely. How does that sort of match up here? Have you found material in that course relevant to your situation or relevant to your client scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. So it, um, and actually just reading that book yesterday, they were talking about pipelining and that was one of the things we actually did do with my dad's estate and realizing back eight years ago, pre-CFP, pre-CLU, like I was privy to some of this stuff, but not necessarily understanding the framework around it, just trusting the experts and the, the accountants and the lawyers to create it, but now having the opportunity to actually learn it, study it, and understand it myself is is awesome. And that's, again, I think my dad's passing was probably the best financial planning test <laughs> experience I could have gone through because we really do, it's crazy to think how many things we touch on in there from a personal aspect, which I really like being able to share with clients because it gives me, I feel like it gives me validity. And again, going back, dad started this business in 1980, built it you know, from client one all the way up to where it was when he passed in 12. And I take it over having just started in 04. I didn't feel like I, I struggled a lot with feeling like I earned it or like I, I should be here. And for myself, the designations have really helped with that. So the CFP, you and I walked closely during that. It was amazing. Same thing with the CLU here, hopefully past this October. I did pick up the CHS and the EPC as well. And I, maybe after this, I'm done. Maybe I'll keep going. But I really do. I enjoy the education aspect. I enjoy the opportunity to expand my knowledge. And I have found that it gives me confidence that I didn't have maybe without them to be in this chair. Maybe family enterprise advisor is next for you, Christopher. Yes. Yep. That's very possible. Yeah. Would make a ton of sense. Now, you mentioned the pipeline specifically, and I find this yeah. interesting because it's such a complex strategy. And yeah. it's not like you would be talking directly to a client about how to implement pipeline, right? Absolutely not. But being able to recognize when they maybe mention three or four things that are taking place, somebody passed, creation of a new company, how they're going to roll things over how many years it has to stay in place, being able to even just say, hey, I, I understand it a bit. Actually, we went through that and we did it right. Like I remember getting the phone call when the tax changes were taking place that this needed to happen now back in the summer of 2017. Like it stands out for sure. Yeah, I, I get that. I think that's the right approach to it. I think that you're still just approaching it as a facilitator. Oh, absolutely. Or maybe a translator, right? Yeah, or just be like, hey, you're not alone. Like, we'll yeah. figure this out, right? Yeah. Sure. Right. I know this was really complicated for me, and it's going to be the same for you, right? Yeah, exactly. Trust these guys, sign what they tell you to sign, and pay the bill? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, obviously, you place a lot of importance then on having good estate planning done. And it's, this is the conversation that was the impetus for inviting you on the podcast today. Can you talk a little bit about how you're ensuring that your clients get their estate plans done? Yes. So do you want me to talk about how the estate plans are done or kind of how the wills and... Yeah, the, the whole, the, the wills specifically. Sorry, I shouldn't conflict the two things. Yeah. Like I go both ways. So this is my 16th year doing this. 
And I remember way back at the start, writing on a piece of paper, every time I sit down with a client, do you have a will? And you'd write yes or no. And if they didn't have a will, okay, when are you gonna get it? This thing's important. They'd say six months, a year, whatever, and I'd mark it down and come back the next meeting, a year later, did you get your will? No, okay, you're gonna get it, yes. And a year, two later, they'd say they're gonna get it. It never happened, Just nothing ever happened. It was this, why am I even tracking this stat kind of thing? So we um, fast forward a number of years, begin the CFP process, begin to really understand the importance of these documents and the role that they play. Lump in my dad's passing and now we're dealing with everything we've gone through there and it's like, okay, we need to figure out a new way to handle this or a new way to deal with this situation. So ask the same question when we sit down with a client, but if the response is no, we've been fortunate enough to have a relationship with a lawyer in town here where we were able to really take control of that whole situation so if you come in and don't have a will power attorney or healthcare director we will go one step further in the meeting to say okay great we have this relationship with you know our lawyer over here he's willing to come into our office and pre-covid he would come in once a month on the third tuesday see you in our boardroom and do up your documents for you now how that works is i give you these two kind of a will kit kind of thing today along with the pricing for it all. The will kit really is just to get the names, addresses, birth dates, spellings, all that stuff out of the way so that when you come in to see the lawyer, you're able to have a discussion around how you want things handled, the way you want them looked after, and where you want the money to go. You can kind of have that meat and potatoes discussion. So you take home the document, fill it in, come back on the third Tuesday, meet him in our boardroom for an hour. You guys shake hands and leave. He'll then email you the draft documents of what it is you would like to have taken place. You review them. And if you want to make any tweaks or changes, feel free to do so. It would be probably four or five weeks after that initial meeting. You would go down to his office to sign and pay. And he would have all your documents complete. And uh, we were booking him up a lot. Like he would come in and have five or six appointments. There were a couple days that it blew up where he'd only have one or two. But we would try to consistently have him five and six appointments and we would be booking actually three months out so if you came in in january we would give you the february march and april date and it gave lots of time to plan people could arrange they knew it was important and we had incredible success so we were completing you know i asked him the other probably i mean a few months ago now but we had done over a hundred sets like you know 600 documents when we're looking at a couple coming one person is getting three documents we did you know dozens of these things and it's it's actually proven to be very successful and the rate that he's charging us is very fair. So we're a single person can get a will, power of attorney and healthcare directive for 250 bucks and a couple can get all six documents for 400 bucks. And he's very willing to meet wherever you are. So if you know, you've got a will, you don't have the power of attorney healthcare directive, you know, it's 150 bucks. They just get those two. So he's, he's very happy to just meet us where we need him, having a designated time, we're taking care of booking the appointment so that we just say, okay, here's our slot. Here's the Tuesday. We know he's here. Which time do you want? We then send him the schedule so he knows when to show up and when to go home. We've really kind of taken control of it and it's producing results. Even just giving the kits to people is useless. You know, one in 10 will even follow up with it. It's just paperwork, but booking the time and booking the time in the meeting more often than not. So when I see them, we book. If they're unable to do that, you know, we follow up with them within a week to get that time booked. And it's, it has worked. It's awesome. I feel great about it. I feel like it really is 
you know, value add, I guess, for us to make sure our clients are looked after. There's nothing in it for us. There's no, you know, referral fee or anything like that back. It's just a pure value add. And I'm a big believer that, you know, what you put into the universe, you're going to get back. And here's a way we're filling the good side. Did you develop the process yourself working with him? Or did you sort of learn this from like a coach or a mentor or something like that? Or was this all self-built? Yeah, just self-built. Yeah. And we've amended the kind of modified the, I guess, information sheet a couple of times to information we would you know want to see on there and talk to him about it, how to change it or tweak it and make it look better. But yeah, just proprietary kind of created it and, and uh, it's been working good. COVID's throwing a bit of a lump in it. We're not having the same success because we have to, we're just doing email introductions and we're saying, hey, we'll book a time over Zoom with him. But I can feel the the lack of control and I can feel stuff getting left. So I'm looking forward to when we can maybe, and maybe we go back to just doing every third Tuesday book and Zoom meetings. And maybe it's that simple, but um, just it hasn't, you know, everything else that's been going on, it, it just hasn't been to the same forefront in the last two months. It's a hard time for wheels right now for a myriad of reasons, right? So totally. combined summer, right? Summer was always a touch slower too. So I'm sure, because you said you're working with some business owner clients, you had some farming clients. I'm sure not everybody sort of falls into that pricing model. I'm sure some people need. So we, uh, one of our most detailed plans was a kind of a family conglomerate out the Kindersley area there. We are dealing with farmland. We had some oil uh, business, multiple companies, USAs. Like, so that one had been in multiple meetings and we're still working on it. So we get some initial kind of basic wills done because we had nothing in place. And then some revisions put in place later, talking to the um, you know, tax accountant and lawyers to make sure that we're getting these USAs set up properly for the way they want the land to transfer. And it's been ongoing. So again, very willing to do that. It started with the same conversation because it's like, oh my goodness, you don't have anything? Okay, so why don't we talk to our planners, we'll talk to your planner and we'll get something put together for you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And do you have a feel for sort of how your clients interact, that is, would you know if they were dissatisfied or if they didn't strike up a good relationship with this lawyer? Or have you had any of that come up where like this turns out not to have been the right fit for that client? So no, usually we'll, um, like I know one of your questions was, do you review the documents? I've seen a couple of them, but I don't make a habit of reviewing the document after getting or after having the will put in place. I do ask the clients how the process went. So the next time we connect or anytime we get an opportunity to do that, I make sure to inquire and it, and everybody has said it's gone well. What we do do every, you know, every three or four months is I'll ask them for a list of outstanding clients. So say we've referred him 120 names, but he's got, you know, 15 that just, they either did the initial meeting and just haven't got back to him. And then we'll actually reach back out to them just to follow up, be like, hey, you know, it's been three months, you had your initial draft wills done, like these are really important. And usually there's, you know, something's gone on, something's happened in, in life that's caused the delay. But just, again, coming back for whatever reason, and we notice it too with head office, like people respond really well to the advisor, right? Whether it's your lawyer, or it's your admin staff, they like the advisor's voice, they like them, you know, affirming something. So if, if something's hanging, a quick phone call or email to say, hey, just touch and base, this is still important. It gets a good response. We've only had under five that haven't actually completed in the last two years. It's impressive. We're gonna have a, a really well-prepared book of business, right? This is, yeah. 
I feel like that, I don't know if you've thought about this effort, but I feel like even from the perspective of building a business that would be attractive to like an acquirer, this would be an asset. Never thought about that. Just, just trying to do the right thing. So haven't got that far down the road. I get that. But I mean, just thinking of the potential headaches, because of course, advisors always have this concern where you have a client who dies and it turns or who loses capacity. Yeah. They don't have will, don't have a power of attorney. That's a lot more work for the advisor and liability for the advisor. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So I don't know if that matters or not, but uh, <laughs> that I sometimes think about is what does somebody's business look like to an outsider, right? Yeah. Now, in terms of sort of a compliance issue, some of the folks listening to this are going to say, well, there's no way that my compliance team would ever allow this to happen. They wouldn't allow a, a sole source referral or you know, they, they make me do a, three referrals or they would never let me have a lawyer come in the office. Do you have any comments about that? Anything useful you can share there? No, we've, we've kind of run this model up the tree on our side and we haven't run into any problems. The whole three referral thing. I mean, you could do that. You could still do the three referrals. You could still give the client the opportunity to pick a client. You could still take care of booking the appointment and maybe doing something through a zoom is easier because now you can facilitate that give the client the option, still book it and kind of handhold it. But the biggest thing I find is it has to be handheld. Like that's finding some way to do that is the only way you're going to see any sort of success here. Just providing somebody three options in an email or phone call isn't going to work. It's just not going to happen unless you can book that appointment somehow. Yeah, I really think that if you're sending the the three people to reach out to that, unless you have some incredibly strong follow-up or story or something like that, that typically is going to fall on deaf ears. I think that that's just human behavior, right? Yeah. And we've received, like I said, we've received no negative feedback on it. Anybody that we've talked to kind of in our world or other world, they love the idea. They love the concept. I've understood again at this a long time now to find a good center of influence is hard. Like to find somebody that you can rebut ideas off. And we, again, this lawyer is awesome. So if I have a client in and he's thinking about having his girlfriend move in, I shoot him an email about a cohab agreement, right? Like, and I make the introductions that way. So it's producing lots of good interaction, I guess, and we can kind of go any way we want. Now, I'm not getting a ton of names back from this guy. So we're, you know, maybe this is just kind of the one trick pony. Maybe this is the way this, this COI relationship works. I am actively trying to find COIs in other areas. It's, it's tough. Like a mortgage broker is hard. <laughs> like finding an accountant, you need the, you know, the kind of the simpler personal one, and then you need the complex business one. So I'm still, I'm amazed at how long it takes to get somebody you're happy, comfortable, and you really enjoy, I guess. So I would be surprised if you got a lot of referrals back from lawyers. I find it's a very rare thing to find a lawyer who sends the financial advisor or financial planner a bunch of referrals. But do you find that it makes you more referable to your clients? It seems like one of those things would be an easy, easy thing for a client to talk about in their group of friends. It absolutely is. And we do every once in a while, like we say, this is for our clients only. But we do notice even some of the other advisors in the office have asked if their clients could use the service or somebody's, you know, Okay. Oh, my mom and dad, like, thank you so much for getting, I, my mom and dad need something. Absolutely. Like we can help you out. So, um, so yes, it does work well in that way. It does produce referrals for sure. Yeah. And at the outset, you talked about bringing on the, the next generation. You talked about you know how you're in this position now where you're starting to see 
because you've been at this a long time, your dad was at this a long time, and you're starting to see second generation clients yeah. come in. Oh yeah, yeah. In some cases, third. Yeah. That's amazing. The third generation <laughs> thing, right? What do you do to facilitate that? How do you make sure that the second or third generation knows that you you want to be there for them? Typically, it's through mom and dad initially, like getting a contact or or reaching out in some way. If we're not fortunate enough to get a hold of them young, then the next time it actually happens is when mom and dad start to lose capacity or they start to come to meetings with mom and dad, then we start to build the relationship that way. I always say mom and dad. I don't know if like, it's just something I've done. So if if a client comes in and, and, you know, Jane has died, it's mom. Like, I'm sorry, mom's died. Like, I'll get mom's beneficiary, but I'll get mom's, like always, like, that's just how I talk. And I don't know if that offends some clients or not. Maybe they want dad to be Jim, but I think just showing that level of care really all of a sudden they start to understand, okay, this place is a, a comfortable place. I, they understand what they're talking about. I could be here. And then just asking the question, right? When, you know, would you like to come in? When can we take a look at some of your, want us to review anything for you? That kind of stuff. So yeah, you're at least the second person I've had on the call on the podcast who actually refers to mom and dad sort of like that. So yeah. Yeah. And uh, I find that interesting. You know, I'm in a family business as well, right? And it's always that, uh, you know, are they Bob and Penny or are they mom and dad, depending who you're talking to sometimes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what about success stories here, Christopher? I think you you and I chatted offline a little bit and you said that you, you've recently gone through one of these where, of course, you know, like in all of our stories, somebody has to die to see sort of the benefit. But can you chat about the outcome of having done this a little bit? Yeah, so, and probably the one most prominent one that stands out was we had a, I'm trying to remember how they originally came now, it was so many years ago, but great, kind of right up to start just reviewing some wealth accounts and getting a, a second opinion on some of their stuff and looking, they had a little small farm, kind of a hobby farm they were doing as well, and met with them, you know, over the last probably five years, a dozen times getting information figured out, documentation in place. We ended up doing a small joint last to die par plan paid up on the first death. We involved our state and financial planning service. Great. Just did lots of good work and then had, you know, a few really good annual reviews, got their wills and fire attorney and documents all in place. And it was this spring that the husband passed. And um, it was very sad to see that transition, but being able to help his wife who now had all of the pieces she need in place to get this transition started was awesome. She was able to go to the bank and deal with what needed to be dealt with. The PAR plan we set up, I felt very good about it actually became paid up on the first death. So she's got this policy now for the rest of her life that she'll never make another payment on. She's only had the thing for two or three years. So that was a win. The farm transition is well underway. They're transitioning it to a nephew. Again, the discussions that we had were awesome in terms of moving that forward before he passed. And it just, it felt like not very often do all the pieces clicked, but here it felt like all of the pieces just fell into place. The planning discussions we had, the insurance we set up, the meetings that took place, you know, the discussions around eliminating some of their debts, all of it fell into place and it's made it as smooth as it can be. Now we're dealing with, and we too often we do widow planning where Husbands died. Now we need to figure out how they want to kind of spend the rest of their time now. And that's where um, we kind of get to do this whole new side of planning. But it really did feel good having her have all the documentation she needed, the power of attorney when he was sick to be able to make some of the changes she needed to make. 
it just felt good. It felt like we did, and nobody knows this, right? Like she knows this, but nobody else knows that we've done this job. It's just there in the background, right? And it's kind of a, yeah, just like, it's a good feeling like, okay, you know, what we do works and the effort and time and energy we put in is important. And you just don't always see that, right? Where you get a client who comes in and wants to cancel their insurance and you just don't understand why. It feels like you're fighting a battle sometimes as the uphill. So on that insurance front, you mentioned in her particular case, you you had this well-designed PAR whole life policy. Yep. How much of what you do do you feel relates back to your understanding of life insurance structures and, and product design and so forth? How How valuable is that? That's a good question. I'll go with a majority of it. So maybe 30 or 40% is just consistently having to know how these things work, right? And where they're going to fit best. Between that and the retirement and estate and money planning, and we do a lot of talk about RESPs and TFSAs and that whole side of things. But when it comes to the insurance, knowing the product is vital. And going even farther with the CFP and the CLU, understanding how that's going to relate to their corporation or how they should do their beneficiary designations and set up their will, all of it ties together. Like it's all very interconnected, absolutely. It makes sense. And I think it's something that's often sort of given, and I, I'm probably guilty of this as much as anything, Christopher, but it's something that's given short shrift where you sort of say, well, the permanent insurance and it's just going to work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the reality is I find people who really understand their product end up, you know, having results like what you're describing, right? The yeah. right product in the right place at the right time. And it really makes a material difference now in this widow's life. It's one thing off the off the shelf she has to worry about, right? Absolutely. And I think a lot of times the you know, big companies or, or just insurance companies, they always want to oversell. Like I'm a firm believer of something is better than nothing. And just because you have an estate plan that says you need whatever, $500,000 of some permanent insurance policy, realistically, you're going to need less than that probably because something's going to change. Somebody's going to get sick. You're going to get divorced. A kid's going to whatever. And just if it's not, if it's not considered properly, you're just setting yourself up for failure down the road or struggle when this thing doesn't work. Like I've experienced that many times and I think it's better to be cautious and make a plan that's going to work, you know, for five, 10, 15, 30 years than one that's just going to work for the next five or 10 because it's without fail, something is going to change. You've been around long enough to have seen that where if, you know, if you, if you sort of did something shoddy for a client a decade ago, it's going to show up now, right? Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you're young enough to still see more of that. <laughs> like, Yeah, and that's part of the concern. Yeah, in 30 years and still got to answer some of these questions, make sure that product is the way it's supposed to be or the way you said it was going to be, right? So, How much of that comes back to having sort of the, I, I guess, some faith in the insurers that you deal with? Yeah, for sure. We deal with one house primarily, but... Um, yeah, as I again going into these designations and understanding how the backbones of these policies work, how PAR accounts are created, and and how they're structuring these is absolutely vital to understanding how the products are going to perform long term. And like our, you know, the dividend rates the way they are today, they're not going to stay there given our current environment. So we need to make sure when those policies are being talked about or sold that they're being done in a very cautious way. Lots of negative two, negative one, because we're not. There's just no way. It's impossible for them to stay at the rates they are for the next. 10 years. Yeah, I think that's a very realistic way to look at it. So, okay, now just going back to the, the lawyer in the office arrangement, which I love. I think this is so, so great, Christopher. You know, I, I'm a big fan of this. Do you have any advice for 
an advisor who might be thinking of implementing something similar? Yeah. The way I connected with this lawyer was through an accountant referral, the accountant I was using at the time. But I think you need to interview people like, and this is kind of the same role I've set up with other COIs, just because you go to some B&I event or you you go somewhere and somebody else recommends them to you, that doesn't mean that they're a good fit. Like I'm at the point now where I'm not referring down if anything we're referring up. So when you come into my office and you see the way our office looks, if your office doesn't look like that, you're not getting the business. Because when I send somebody to you, it needs to look as good or better than where we are. So I'll go, like I'll, you know, we'll go have a coffee in your office. You can show me the process. We'll go have some lunch. I think too many times it's like, oh yeah, you perfect. You're a mortgage broker. Great. Oh yeah. You know, Jim, I know Jim too. Okay, cool. Let's do this. And there's, isn't time maybe given or consideration given to what the client experience is going to be like. And this is where I get frustrated is I need to see the process. I need to see how you do it. You're start to finish. So doing some of those little interviews to find somebody who's going to mate well with what you're providing so that a, they're not maybe making you look bad or B, they're not horrible and you look awesome. You want to refer, you know, laterally, I think from a business standpoint, then you want your clients to feel good. So if you do start the process, review heavily with your clients the first few times to see how they feel. Like how did, was there any problems? Well, he took, I sent him three emails. He didn't get back to me. Okay. Well, that's the problem. Like this isn't going to work. If that's how this communication is. So I think you need to be invested, involved, and put a little bit of time in at the start to really find somebody that you're happy with. And once you have that, then go for it. Yeah, that's that's a good piece of advice, I think, is just to, to think about what you want this to look like long-term. You're not just trying to get step one done. You have to really think about what this is going to look like a year or two from now, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, you need to have somebody who's engaging with you. Like, I, I don't like the set and forget. I like to be involved, engaged. I don't need to be in, involved in all the decisions, obviously, but I like to know what's going on. I like to have my kind of fingertips just around it anyway. Yeah, I think having him come into your office is probably perfect yeah. that way, right? That's he, Clients know where you are. They're not getting lost trying to pay some meter downtown. Like, I hated being downtown for that reason. So why would I throw a client downtown for another meeting? Come here, see him here. You know where we are. You know, you're comfortable here. This is easy. And that's, you've got to eliminate blocks for this yeah. stuff to happen. You've got to eliminate as many pieces or hurdles as you can along the way to make it simple. Yeah, that's, um, that's pure behavioral finance now is take the pain out, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks very much for joining us to chat about that today. Christopher, do you have any uh, last minute thoughts? Anything that I should have asked that I didn't? I don't think so. Other than uh, like you're an amazing instructor and I love taking my designations through you. You teach the material appropriately. You make the person feel confident and then you're able to crush your exam. So I have appreciated that relationship over the years. Well, I might have to edit all that out, Christopher. I'm <laughs> feeding my ego, which it hardly <laughs> needs. So thanks. So I do appreciate it though. You know, we appreciate the business and referrals yeah. and so forth. So yeah, Absolutely. thanks very much and uh, have a wonderful day then. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Okay, now I know some of you listened to that and said, wow, my compliance department would not allow me to do that. That's simply not something that they would allow. The first thing I would suggest here is don't jump to that conclusion. Okay, talk to your compliance department if this is something that's interesting to you. And maybe there's some midpoint you can arrive at here. So maybe 
As an example, you reach out to an estate lawyer and say, hey, would you block book this day? So you set aside whatever, every second Thursday and say, would you block book that day for my clients? And you actually book the appointments. So maybe you say, all right, every client that comes in over the next couple of weeks, if they don't have a will, I'm going to put one of them in that lawyer's 8.30 a.m. slot and then the next one's the 10 a.m. slot or whatever it happens to be. And then, of course, you'd want to share the client's email address with that lawyer so they can send whatever information, gathering documents they have. There are ways to make this easier. And maybe if you don't get to see that meeting happen face to face, maybe you send the client an email afterwards and say, hey, I understand you probably met with the lawyer in question yesterday with Aaron or whoever it happened to be. How did it go? Any follow-up questions? Anything we should be talking about? And that, to me, does a couple of things. It really addresses that you're putting a high degree of importance on this. It takes a lot of the decision-making off of the client. It's something I've talked about previously, but Moira Summers makes this point in her excellent book, Advice That Sticks, that when you tell a client, go get a will done, it sounds like, to you maybe, that you're recommending one thing, that you're saying, client, here's one thing you have to do. But the reality is, from the client's perspective, there's probably somewhere between 10 and 15 individual steps that have to be taken that actually result in creating a will. So book the meeting with the lawyer, fill out the lawyer's pre-interview screening. There's probably some research that has to be done there. Go look at beneficiary designations, find a copy of an old will, all that kind of stuff. Actually go attend the meeting with the lawyer. That might involve taking a spouse along and then you have to match up spouses' schedules. You have to then sit with the lawyer and make some decisions about who executors and beneficiaries are going to be. It's a lot more than just one thing, writing a will. So anything you can do, like what Christopher does here, to just make that thing easier, that's beautiful. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, now our second 
interview is with Stephen. And Stephen had reached out to me, it's quite a while ago that we actually recorded this, but he had reached out to me with a question that I get a lot of. And what I find here is that insurance agents tend to be trained that the only way to do a beneficiary designation is in your app and that you would never want a life insurance benefit to pass through a will. I would suggest that that's not necessarily the case. I think there are many cases when we want a life insurance benefit to flow through a will. And Stephen and I are going to talk about that a little bit in the interview. He has good questions here. You can tell from his questions that he has thought through this, that when a client asks him a question, he's really earnest about wanting to get a good answer to that question and make sure he's not giving his clients bad advice. This speaks to, again, something that we see on the behavioral side now of CFP curriculum, and that is dealing with bias. And when you actually take a minute to listen to a client's question and think through, hey, am I actually giving the client the best possible advice? Or am I subjecting this client to bias in a previously held opinion that may not have any basis in fact? That's how you're going to help to address that bias. Very difficult to address your internal bias. All right, let's hear what Stephen has to say. Okay, I'm joined today by Stephen. Stephen is a financial planner based in Calgary. He works at a multi-line firm, so licensed for pretty much everything, actually licensed for life insurance, uh, property and casualty insurance, and also mutual funds. I have that right, Stephen? Yep, you got it. Perfect. And you're about four years in the business, I think. Is that right? Four or five years? Yes, four and a half. Perfect. And you reached out to me with this question that I get a lot of. So I don't know, can you just frame the question for us a little bit, Stephen? Yes, I just have a couple of clients. Well, I get asked this question quite a few times, whether or not to include the life insurance in their will. And when you get that question, is there typically any more context to it? Or is it sort of just that? And the client doesn't really understand anything further about the question they're asking? Um, It's just so they don't really understand because, uh, of course, they consider life insurance as uh, assets. And when they're doing estate planning, um, they kind of want to ask me first. So I believe the biggest issue is whether or not they'll forget about it. So whether they put it in the will and then forget about it or whether they forget to mention it to their lawyer at all, do you mean? Oh, no, like whether they like put it in the will and they forget, it's, a, it's only a little bit of a concern. They think that they're going to forget about their life insurance or whether or not it's not going to go to the right beneficiary. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, so I guess, and just briefly, I'll mention sort of the spoiler alert chunk here. So it's perfectly legal to do either. You can make a beneficiary designation on an app like you're well accustomed to, or you can make a beneficiary designation in a will. And I'd like to get into some of the facts in, in some of these cases, and we can see why you would do one or the other. Both are equally valid. And what the Insurance Act says in all of the common law provinces is that the most recent designation is the one that wins. So if a client goes to see you, Stephen, and then six months later, they're sitting down with their lawyer and they draft a will that says on 
policy number 123456, I name person X as beneficiary, that would override whatever they had done with you. That's fair? Okay. Yeah, okay. that's fair. And that's actually fairly clear in the Insurance Act. I believe it's Section 660 of the Alberta Insurance Act, which fairly explicitly lays that out. You really have to sort of be able to read what the Insurance Act is saying, but it says something to the effect of an, a designation made in a will is still an effective designation. So it's valid to do either. And you raise a point here. You say, okay, I'm concerned that the client might sort of forget about the insurance, right? So are you thinking that they put it in the will and then they're not really thinking about that being a separate amount or an amount that they can use for other purposes? Maybe you can just talk me through that concern a little bit more. Well, the client I dealt with, their concern is that we know the life insurance doesn't go through the will necessarily. So it's probate-free, tax-free, right? But if it's not going to be included in the will, and like it won't be, how can I say this? They're afraid that they're just going to forget about the insurance. But that was like just one of the issues I had. I want to speak with a lawyer as well. Um, but from what you're saying, I fairly understand what you mean. Yeah, I do think it's really good to talk to the lawyer. So that's something that I would I would suggest is if the client comes to you and says, hey, my lawyer is suggesting that I should include the insurance in the will, I think it's worthwhile to say, client, do you mind if I talk to your lawyer? And then reach out to the lawyer and say, hey, I see what's going on here. And can you just talk me through it a little bit, right? And I think that you can ask right. from a point of curiosity. I think it's perfectly fine to do that. Right. Jason, from your experience, would you include the amounts as well? Or would you just state to the fact that there is a life insurance at this company? Yeah. So this is where you start to get a little bit sticky, right? So you mentioned the sort of probate question. And this is where I have to be very careful about how I make the beneficiary designation. So when you sell somebody an insurance policy or a service to policy and update it later on, when you make a beneficiary designation on an app or on a change of beneficiary form, it's very clear that if you're naming a personal beneficiary, so if that person names their child or their grandchild or their spouse or whatever it happens to be, that's clearly a beneficiary designation, right? And that's going to bypass probate and there's going to be creditor protection for the death benefit. That's all agreed? Yeah. Okay. So you can accomplish the same thing in the will if you are bulletproof clear about it. So the language here is going to be something to the effect of, I, policy owner, designate this person, name them, as beneficiary. So that language has to be just so, right? I designate this person as beneficiary on whatever insurer X policy number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And if you do it that way, then it's really the same treatment as if you had done it yourself on the app or change of beneficiary form in your office. It still bypasses probate and it still achieves creditor protection. The one difference here is that you do, and this actually might be a benefit, this is not necessarily a downside, it's just a difference, is that you lose confidentiality. Oh, I see. Now, that's actually, when you talk about it being forgotten, that's kind of where you want that confidentiality gone, right? Because in that case, the client says, I don't want anybody forgetting about this life insurance. I want to make sure that my 
claimant knows about it, that they would be able to claim. And the will gives that public awareness of that beneficiary designation. Does that follow with, with how you look at this? Okay. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now, there's some risk to this. This is not a riskless proposition. If the beneficiary designation in the will is not done properly, then you do lose all of that benefit of getting this treatment. And first thing is, one of the reasons to talk to the lawyer, a lot of lawyers do know this. So I actually had an estate lawyer from Calgary who presented a session I did recently, and he said he's very careful to do this. And that is, if he makes a change of beneficiary on a will, he will reach out to the insurer. He'll call the legal counsel at the insurer and say, hey, I've got this client sitting across from me. I'm dealing with policy number, whatever. And we are making a change of beneficiary via the will. Because if you don't do that, of course, and I don't know how many death benefit claims you've dealt with, Stephen, but what do you know about death benefit claims here, right? Um, yes, I've done a few. And they're quick, right? The insurer will pay them out. Yeah, within a week. Yeah, maybe 10 to 14 days in, in the longest cases, right? Right. But if there's no concern about criminal activity or fraud or whatever, then yeah, you're going to see that death benefit paid out quickly. So if you had done the beneficiary designation in your office and later on the client goes to the lawyer and the lawyer updates the will with a different beneficiary, it wouldn't be unusual that will doesn't really start to get actioned until 10, 14 days, maybe three weeks after death, right? Okay. So if the insurer doesn't know about that change, they could have already paid the death benefit to the beneficiary you designated. And it may be an error then where now the insurer has to potentially go back to that beneficiary, recover that death benefit, and pay it out to the person who was named in the will because the will was done more recently. It would be the legally correct document. That's good. Okay. Wow. That yeah, that, that would be um, quite the issue. Yeah. And there's a little bit of case law where that has happened. There's a fairly high profile case in Nova Scotia from the mid 80s where the insurer did that and ended up having to, the insurer actually ended up having to sue everybody to get the money back. It, it's real messy. And actually, I'm aware of a case here in Peace River where the insurer did that. It was a relatively small death benefit. It was about $80,000, but it's a classic Peace River okay. story. So what had happened is by time the insurer was successful in court, the money was all spent. It was $80,000 worth of snowmobiles was purchased. And the judge said, well, hey, the money's gone, insurer and proper beneficiaries. Sorry, we can't do anything about it. So it's a funny case. I don't know, funny for somebody, but but I think it's such a, I don't know. Okay, yeah, that would be a lot to deal with at the same time as uh, death in the family as well. So you see why I suggest calling the lawyer is not a bad idea here, right? Yeah, to establish a good relationship with the lawyer as well. That's it, right? The, and I think most lawyers are going to be happy to get that call. And some lawyers who do a lot of wills work are going to know this, but the lawyer who is doing sort of four or five lines of business may not be aware of that requirement. Now, if the lawyer drafts the will and isn't more careful, maybe this happens deliberately. So I don't know, do you ever name an estate as beneficiary? No, it's my clients usually know who they want to go to. I haven't had the case where the estate was the beneficiary. That's fair. 
there are reasons to do it, right? There are valid reasons to name the estate as beneficiary. Right. To pay that tax. Yeah, perfect. Right. So if you're dealing with creditor claims or if you're dealing with the taxes or potentially for just to create liquidity in the estate, if you have a whole bunch of illiquid assets and just know that your executor is going to need some cash to operate your business or something like that. Right. Right. So when you name your estate as beneficiary, of course, you lose a bunch of advantages. You now have no creditor protection. You now have no confidentiality and that death benefit will be probated. Now you and I are in Alberta, so probate's pretty low. Yeah. However, in the will, it's a fairly common drafting error to not make the beneficiary designation as I had suggested. And there are many different versions of this error where the drafting lawyer writes something to the effect of this death benefit is payable to my personal representative or this death benefit is payable to the executor, or this death benefit would form part of my assets at death, or this death benefit would form part of the estate. All of those will have the same effect, and that is the death benefit now forms part of the estate, which means it can be used to settle taxes, or it can be used to settle creditor claims, and if you're in a probate province, it also will attract probate. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Now, there's another potential downside here or another potential concern, and this is one that I see experienced life insurance agents sometimes voice as something they have real life experience with. So if you have a more complicated estate, if you've got you know, somebody who dies owning two or three rental properties, some non-registered investments, it's very normal that the executor is going to engage a lawyer to help them manage the estate. That's, I don't know if you've seen that with any of your clients, but this would be typical. Yeah. And where that happens, then the lawyer will typically charge. The lawyer will essentially charge a trustee fee for managing those assets. So they, I can't remember, sorry, if it's two and a quarter, two and a half, but in every province, it's either two and a quarter percent of assets coming in and two and a quarter percent of assets flowing out or two and a half and two and a half. So somewhere between four and a half and five and a half percent of the total assets is allowed to be charged by that lawyer who is helping manage the estate. Okay. Some lawyers, not all lawyers will do this. This is a question that the executor should ask the lawyer before they engage them. They should always say, look, if you're going to help me, tell me how you're going to calculate your fees. Because 5% is a pretty steep haul, right? That's a fair bit of your estate gone, right? Yeah, for sure. Especially when you have a large life policy. That's it. So I know a lot of lawyers who say, you know, I do like to have the death benefit paid into the estate because it gives us more flexibility as to what to do with it. But I won't charge my fee on that amount because it doesn't increase my workload. It's simple money right? It's not like a rental property where you have to go and deal with land titles and you might have to deal with tenants and you might have to deal with lease agreements and so forth, right? There's none of that complexity with a life insurance death benefit. So I find a lawyer who really wants this done right will say, you know, we can figure out where the right place to pay the death benefit is. It might be into the estate. And if it is good, but my fee won't encompass that amount. Okay. Now, Jason, um, would you say most lawyers charge the fee though? I don't honestly know, Stephen, what the percentages are. It's 
really it's a case by case and case by case. Gotcha. Yeah. And again, this goes to when you have that conversation with the lawyer, if the lawyer says, I want this money paid into the estate, it's okay to ask them to say, is that going to cost the client a portion of that death benefit? Is there going to be some portion of your fee that would uh, eat up some of the estate there? And, you know, there's a nice way to ask it and a challenging way to ask it, but I think it's a question that should be asked. Okay. So Jason, since I have you on the line here, I'm just going to ask you another question on top of that, because I am in the process of working with a lawyer right now. Okay. Um, I've had one case where a client wanted to keep the life insurance as kind of a surprise for her granddaughter. So what would you do in that sort of case? So she wants it to be a surprise for her granddaughter. In that case, she didn't want to tell anyone about it. So would she just leave that in the will and I designate the beneficiary as her granddaughter? Yeah. So what you can do here, there's a bunch of different ways to approach that. I personally, in that case, when you're looking to have a surprise, you know, my thought here is always, as soon as more than one person knows a secret, it's not a secret anymore, right? And I know the lawyer's beholden to confidentiality, but, you know, you write it in the will and then the executor has a copy of the will and, you know, that word gets around, right? So, yeah, I think in a case like that, confidentiality is something that your client is genuinely concerned about. Yeah. So I would leave the death benefit just addressed on the app. I wouldn't mention it in the will in that case. Now, you could still accomplish the same thing. So what you could potentially do is in the will, you could say there is this life insurance policy, policy number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, referred to the life insurance app or refer to the insurer's paperwork for the beneficiary designations. And what you might have to do, Stephen, I would talk to the drafting lawyer about this. What you might have to do to be perfectly above board is to update the beneficiary designation, even though it's not going to change, you're using the same beneficiaries, but update the beneficiary designation after your client writes that will, just so that there is no doubt about who the beneficiary is. And there's no doubt as to which the most recent document is. Is that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. That being said, you know, talk to the drafting lawyer about it. Make sure that the drafting lawyer is thinking about the problem the same way you are. Okay. That's very fair. Yeah. Do you have, uh, I guess, any specific client sort of circumstances? The, this one's a good example. This lady looking to leave money to her grandkids. Anything else like that where you'd have a client who has specific circumstances that might dictate where the money is paid or not paid? Um, I don't have one like currently or one that I can think of. But um, see, the reason I asked you these questions is because I haven't actually worked with a lawyer yet. And when clients ask me for estate planning questions, I'd love to like refer that with a lawyer and work on the case with the client. Do you find most of your clients show up with the lawyer already in mind? Or are you suggesting that you sort of want to build a network of lawyers that you're comfortable referring people to? I'd like to build a network of lawyers. The recent client I had hasn't even done her will yet and didn't know of the lawyer. So she's kind of asking me the question when this should be more so a lawyer question. But I just wanted to get you know your expertise on this as well as a financial planner. Yeah. And I mean, I know some good estate planning folks in Calgary. The folks I know are all at a boutique firm, which means you're paying a fair price for that will. So, you know, I think it's worth having a couple different lawyers to refer to. Not everybody wants to spend $2,000 on a will and not everybody needs a $2,000 will, right? 
again, if I have you know, three rental properties and a small business and I have maybe an X somewhere, then yeah, you probably need a more thoroughly done will, but you don't necessarily need to spend that kind of money on a will. So if you, um, actually, I know you and I are connected on LinkedIn, Stephen, I'll connect you with some yeah. folks there. So. Okay. That'd be great. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, that's good. I, and I like that. I think that it's worth building up that network. There's lots of ways to do that. So thanks for answering my questions. It was very comprehensive. Wrote lots of notes here. I appreciate you coming on the podcast to get this question answered. I know we could have done this another way, but I, I was looking for, like you said earlier, this is a very common question. And I hear this question all the time. I thought it'd be nice to have this uh, recorded somewhere and give people an opportunity to work through us. And I will mention, this is really the same in every province outside of Quebec. So the Uniform Life Insurance Act makes this a, a relatively simple proposition to compare from one province to the next. So yeah, that's great, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. All right, Jason. Thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Thanks. Again, I really enjoyed this discussion, maybe because I got to do a little bit of, I don't know, whatever it is, teaching in here or whatever we want to call it. It sounds like something that would happen in class, honestly. I really want to give props again to Stephen for thinking through his questions here and making sure that he's taking advice back to his clients that is useful. I do have a couple of follow-on comments. So it's exactly correct what I say in here, the most recent document of the two wins. If you're going to make a beneficiary designation in a will, it's very important, as we talk about in the interview, that everything matches up nicely. What you want to have then is probably the beneficiary designation with the insurer reads estate. And then in the will itself, we make a specific designation here that looks a lot like what you would see in an app. You'll say whatever the insurer number is, or the insurer, sorry, is with the policy number. You'll say this person is intended to be my beneficiary. The lawyer can write trust instructions in here. It's one of the advantages to doing it this way is you can create very detailed trust instructions by doing this, which I find is often a deficiency when we leave death benefit to minor children, especially, or maybe even an adult child where that person might have a capacity concern or maybe a, a spendthrift or something like that. So we can really do a lot more this way. But it's important that the lawyer draft the will where it's very clear that that's a beneficiary designation. And if we have a beneficiary designation that's done in the will, then we still get the effects of a normal beneficiary designation. So you still have the ability to bypass probate and bypass creditor claims. Now, if the death benefit is deemed to form part of the estate, then that's no longer true. So if you actually are using your death benefit to basically give to the executor to create a larger residual distribution, then you're going to lose that uh, creditor protection and be subjected to probate. You will lose confidentiality. Okay, You'll lose confidentiality no matter what. And I know sometimes we look for that confidentiality in our estate plan. But otherwise, a beneficiary designation in a will is the same as a beneficiary designation made in the app. We just can do a little bit more with it. Now, again, if you're using it to create a trust, for example, then it's probably going to be deemed by the courts to form part of the estate and you may lose that access to 
creditor protection and you may end up subject to probate. These are questions that you should be discussing with your lawyer and they would be very much dependent on the facts of the case. The number for today's episode is eight. The number for today's episode is eight. Okay, please do join us again in two weeks' time. In two weeks, we're going to have Tim on the call. And Tim and I got to discuss something that I was uh, pleasantly surprised at, something I never thought I'd have the chance to talk about on one of these calls, and that's the RCA, or the Retirement Compensation Arrangement. Pretty nerdy stuff, honestly, but really a useful tool in a very, very narrow set of circumstances. And we're going to hear about Tim's experiences, both good and bad, with putting an RCA in place or discussing an RCA implementation with a client. Thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. A few people help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out. They take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that. Mm -hmm.